For example, like an authentic personality could be pairing together being an optimist with being bluntly realistic, being quiet but also being funny, loving classical music and then at the same time absolutely hating Mozart with your life. An authentic sense of style could be maybe you pair together, you know, you dress very femininely, but then every now and then you sport menswear like a blazer or your boyfriend's t-shirt or something. The more of a unique combination of things you are, the more little pieces you add to your identity capital, the more impossible it becomes to compete with you. The more competition completely goes out the window and also out of your own mind. Nobody else could possibly be Apple because Apple did something that no company ever thought of doing. They made a piece of hardware into something beautiful. So authenticity kills competition and as a result, it will make you very successful in what you're doing. Hey guys, it's Elena. Welcome back to 20-something. I'm coming at you guys live from Rome this week. I'm in Rome for a business trip. I was just in Barcelona for fun to visit Sahar, but now it's back to work. So I'm in Rome with some colleagues for the week. This one I was really, really excited to record. That's why I'm doing it here even without all of my equipment, my mic and all of that, because I really wanted to talk to you guys about this. I'm trying something a little bit new with this one. So you guys know I've done these episodes a couple of times where I compile usually a list of 20 or so the best ideas or thoughts that I heard in podcast books, other resources, etc. over the past month, and then I relay them to you. I want to do this one a little bit differently. So instead of giving you 20 ideas and only giving them to you at face value, like running through the list quickly but not explaining them in depth, in this episode I wanted to go for I'll give you basically a smaller number of ideas, but I want to talk about how I understood them in more detail. Hopefully it'll make for a more interesting conversation. So the idea is to go for quality over quantity. You could say I've been experimenting with a few different episode formats lately. So as always, tell me what you think in the comment section on Apple Podcasts or on social media. You can connect with me anywhere message me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I actually reply and I love hearing from you guys on there. Much love as always and without further ado. These are the best things or the most interesting ideas that I heard in podcasts this month. And the other purpose of recording this is to give credit where credit is due. So the hope is that either you will also find these ideas interesting and be inspired to apply them in your own life as I have, or worst case scenario, it just serves to give credit to the people behind these ideas because credit credit should be given where credit is due and the people behind these ideas are ones who I respect very much and like they have certainly a better way of articulating these ideas so if anything I say catches your attention I'd encourage you to like go to the original source and actually hear it from them but I'm just here to compile so without again without further ado these are the best things that I heard in podcasts this month Number one, someone asked a question that really caught my attention, which was, how often do you actually approach people who could reject you? How often do you approach people who are likely even to reject you, who have a higher standard? Like those are the people who you want to surround yourself in rooms with. This question caught my attention because I think I'm guilty of it. And most of us are like women, especially do this a lot. A woman rarely approaches a man who she doesn't know in public. And if she does, 
it's usually that she's approaching somebody who she has some hunch or level of confidence that they're attracted to her, which if you think about it, it's such a cop-out because it's too easy. Like you're not taking a risk. You're only approaching people who you perceive to be at your same caliber, but not above, which means inherently, if you break it down, that you are basically settling for being around people who don't impress you that much. Like not the people who are a risk to approach because there's some possibility that they could reject you. For example, like this is why you see the most gorgeous supermodel women dating guys who aren't objectively that attractive. It's because he had the balls to approach her. Obviously, there's other reasons too, of course, but you get the point. And this principle, like it doesn't have to be in purely in romantic settings either. Like how often do you approach people who could reject you? How often do you try to make conversation with people or be friends with people who could reject you? How often do you approach clients? Do you approach investors or potential mentors who could reject you? How often do you try to partner in business with somebody who could very well say no? Even if you we're talking about jobs, for example, how often do you apply for jobs that you're way underqualified for and will probably reject you? The point is like this question prompts a, a fundamental principle that most of us are probably not taking as much risk as we should if we really want to get to the next level and be in the kind of rooms that we want to be in. We often stay in our comfort zones, especially with the relationships that we have. Most of us are not approaching the people who could reject us. And the reason we're not is likely out of fear. But what that means is that you're passing up opportunities to be around the people who truly meet your standard. The people who actually impress you. Because the people who you want to be in rooms with, the people you want to surround yourself with and to be interacting with on a daily basis are the ones who could reject you if you approach them. It's the people who really impress you and the people who you perceive to be of high value or above you in some category. Whatever that category is, however you measure it, like either we're talking about people who are maybe more successful than you or smarter than you or more confident than you or more stylish than you, however you measure it, those are the people who you want to surround yourself with because that's how you level up. Like if you, for example, if you settle for dating, if we go back to the dating example, if you settle for somebody who it doesn't require risk to approach, or if you settle for friends who did not require risk for you to put yourself around, or for a job that didn't require much risk for you to get into, you may still be happy, but you're not going to be forced to level up by nature of the people who you're around. You may still be happy again, but any progress that you make will have to be a result of your own independent work. It will be more difficult to progress versus if you have people around you who are accelerating that progress or who are forcing you to level up to match them or kind of to be competitive and exceed them. So this, when I heard this, like I thought this was such a simple, such a simple question, but such a good kick in the ass also. That's why I wanted to include it. And I think my takeaway from this is that next time I'm in public, when I see a man who actually impresses me, I'm going to approach him. Or next time I see somebody who's doing cool shit, who I want to work with, I'm going to approach them. The second idea I heard that I thought was interesting was it has to do with goal setting. And this was something Lauren Everts Bostick said on a solo episode that she did on the Skinny Confidential, where she was talking about, I think, productivity hacks generally. And it was this idea of setting setting monthly goals instead of yearly goals. But specifically, she was saying that every month 
She sets one singular goal that becomes her entire focus for that month. And then when the month changes, she sets a new goal and focuses on that. So the idea is set a goal each and every month that is your pure focus for that month that you have to accomplish. And that sounds so simple, like set monthly goals, whatever. But still, this is one that I heard that made me go, oh shit, like why am I not doing that? I like that idea as opposed to setting, for example, like you could set 12 annual goals that you work on simultaneously and want to hit by the end of the year. Or you could use her method where you set one goal for each month and you just go full force towards that thing for the next 30 days. And I kind of, I like the latter and I've never done it, but it's something I want to experiment with because the logic makes sense. Like it's true that yearly goals often get away from us. Or like, even if you're good at staying focused on them, the same momentum is not there because you know that you have a longer time frame. A year is a very long time. Like I usually set goals for my year and a lot of the time I catch myself thinking, you know, it's whatever, it's okay if I don't make huge progress towards X this month because I'll, I'll catch up. If I was busy, I'll just catch up next month. Like I balance out throughout the year. So even if like I always hit all of my annual goals, but even if that is the case, it's possible that I could be spending half of the year completely slacking off and then end up doing all of the work in the last six months or even in the last quarter of the year when I realize like, oh shit, I better pick up the pace if I want to hit this by year end. So I like this idea of setting monthly goals because it doesn't give you the same leeway. Like it forces you to stay focused. Even if like, let's say it's a very ambitious goal that would normally take a person a year. I kind of like the idea of challenging yourself by saying, we're going to try to get this done in the next 30 days. Because even if it's you do not believe it to be feasible, using this strategy of setting shorter, like month long timeframes for goals could, my hunch is basically that it could end up in me making faster progress towards the same goals that I've previously given myself a year to complete. Because that, if you think about it, abides by Parkinson's law. Like this idea is something I've talked about on this podcast before. Parkinson's law is the concept that work expands to fit the time that you give it. So if you give yourself 12 months to do something, you're going to take the entire 12 months and dilly-dally and end up finishing at the end of the 12 months. But if you tell yourself, like, I need to finish this in six weeks, or in this case, I need to finish this in 30 days, the work expands to fit the time that you give it. So if you give yourself a shorter timeline, you're going to find a way to get it done in 30 days. You're going to work more efficiently. You're going to cut the crap. And you will end up actually with the same output even though you gave yourself a shorter time frame, And in some cases, even your output will be better exactly because you didn't have time for all of the bullshit, for all of the extra fluff. You just had to do the essential and get the thing done in the most straightforward way. So I, I think I'm going to try this. I really liked this idea. And what I'm going to try to do is to have my goal each month be of different nature. So what I mean by that is one month, maybe I'll focus on a health goal. And then the next I'll focus on a money-related goal. The next I'll focus on a mental goal, et cetera, to give myself a little bit of like variation in what my focus is. But either way, I really liked this idea, as simple as it is, of setting monthly goals instead of annual goals. The next few ideas are all from Naval, either from his Twitter or a podcast. There's a long podcast episode he did where he basically, there's an interviewer who's kind of prompting him, but it's mainly him talking, breaking down the entire famous tweet thread he did on how to get rich without getting lucky. It's a super long episode. It's like three plus hours, something like three and a half. 
but it's worth the listen. Even if you have already read that famous tweet thread, he basically goes into depth about each of the ideas in each of those individual tweets. And listening to him speak is just like a word of God. He has a really incredible way of articulating thoughts and like this quiet wisdom that kind of reminds you of the Buddha. But so the last few are all ones that I took notes on that he's explained in this podcast episode. And these are the ones that like particularly kind of jumped out to me. So I'll go through them. The first was when he said that the three most decisions you will make in early life are one, what city to live in, two, who to be with, and three, what to do. Those three decisions will change the trajectory of your life. This one stuck with me because it actually did not necessarily resonate with me a ton right now. Like I didn't hear this and go, oh yeah, like he's so right. But I still know logically that it's probably wise advice and that I should probably listen to it and that I will probably realize later in life that there was truth to it. Because there are two categories of advice. Like you can classify all advice in terms of like the two different possible reactions you have to it. One is the advice that you hear and you know immediately that it is true because you have seen firsthand the truth in it. You've already experienced that it is true. And the second category is the advice that you maybe don't quite grasp yet when you hear it because you have not yet personally experienced the truth in it, but you can still kind of assess objectively that it is true because of the credibility of the person who said it or because of the number of people who you've heard say it, et cetera, like all these other ways of kind of measuring whether or not it's sound advice. So you conclude that it's probably true and that you should probably listen to it. And this one from what Naval said for me was like falls into the latter category of advice. The three most important decisions that you will make early in life are what city to live in, who to be with, and what to do. Those will change the trajectory of your life. I think for people in their early 20s, me included, I was trying to kind of think about where I'm at with those three decisions. What city to live in, I think I made a good decision with Chicago. Like Chicago is good for right now for this chapter of my life. And it brought me a lot of good in terms of like career, social life, independence, etc. But I also knew that I do want to move around again soon. And where I decide to move next will be important and will probably shape what the next few years of my life will look like. Specifically, like the two places on my mind right now are either New York City or somewhere in Europe. And obviously, like, those are two very different places. So whichever path I choose will lead to two very different lives in the near term. The second decision was who to be with. And I know that that will also be a decision that will change my life drastically. Like, right now, I'm 23 and I'm single, but I'm thinking about who I want to spend my life with and what kind of man I want that to be. And I think that who you choose as your partner will either make your life much easier or it'll make your life much harder depending on who you choose. And that is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And then the last of the three was what to do. He meant this in the professional context. So what you choose to do with your life as a career, what kind of work you choose to dedicate yourself to, that one's arguably like the biggest decision that you make because in terms of time, like it is simply the thing that will form the majority of your life in terms of the amount of time that it takes up. So if I'm spending 60 to 90 hours a week on whatever my professional craft is, I'd say most people fall in that range, like somewhere between 
60, 70, 80, 90. So if you're spending that much time on whatever you choose as your career, like I want that to be something that I enjoy doing, that I'm obsessed with, that keeps me on my toes and that keeps my brain sharp. And also I want it to be something that contributes some sort of value to other people in the world. Like I don't want that time to just be a wasted, go to the wind towards useless bureaucratic tasks or for something that is only, even if it is beneficial, but only to myself. Like I don't want my career to be inherently selfish. I want to be creating some sort of value for other people, whether it's product or information or like value can be transmitted in a lot of forms, but I want to be able to to see that whatever I'm spending my life doing contributes to some kind of progress in society or creates value in other people's lives. That career one, like what to do is something that I'm, it's a decision that I'm in the middle of right now. Like I chose consulting two years ago when I was finishing business school as the job to start my career with. And that clearly determined what the trajectory of my early 20s was. I started with a career that pays pretty well for my age, so it's going to be hard to adjust downwards after this. It brought me to the US. It created the professional network around me right now. It introduced me to my colleagues. It gave me closer exposure to the two or three industries that I've done projects in, so I understand better how businesses work in those industries. It allowed me to travel the world. Like like I said, I'm on a business trip in Rome right now, which still doesn't even feel real. Like I'm very grateful that I get to travel so much with my job. So the point is like the choice of a career changed the trajectory of what my life looked like in my early 20s. If I had chosen to be an investment banker or an artist or a baker or a journalist, my life would be very different. But as I've talked about openly, I also know that this is not the career I'm going to stick with for the rest of my life. So if I'm making that decision now about what to do next, I'm very aware of how much like whatever I decide is going to completely change what the rest of my life ends up looking like. And I think that Naval summed up these three core decisions really well. And even though maybe I'm not old enough or wise enough to fully understand what he was getting at, like he's probably 45 or something in that ballpark. I still have a feeling that one day I'll understood, I'll understand what he meant. The next idea I liked was that Technology democratizes consumption, but consolidates production. What does that mean? Technology democratizes consumption. What that means is that it enables more people to access more things. But on the other side of things, it consolidates production. So the result is that the best person in the world at anything gets to do it for everybody. Apple is the best at making smartphones, for example. So they get to do it for everybody. They have a near monopoly. Amazon is the best at delivering products to your home, so they get to do it for everybody and they have a near monopoly. The same is true in most fields. Like the best person in the world at anything, if you can be better than everybody else, you probably will get to do it for everyone and make a lot of money as a result. The reason this caught my attention is that it's something I've been thinking a lot about relative to like all the lawsuits going on the past couple of years in the tech world. There's a lot of debate about whether these like big tech companies, I mentioned Apple, for example, Google, Microsoft, blah, 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 whether they're anti-competitive, whether or not it's fair, etc. And I understand the, uh, the argument. Honestly, I get it. But these lawsuits get under my skin a little bit. Like I don't necessarily with, agree with them because I think that 
although some of them have valid arguments, like obviously these things should be treated on a case-by-case basis as they are, the way that I generally think about it is that big tech companies have near monopolies simply because they're the best at what they do. Nobody granted them monopoly power over the market. Like it's not unfair. It would only be unfair if if somebody gave them the advantage, fell in their lap, but they worked for it. They got there because they are the best at what they do. They got there by themselves because they figured out how to give people either the best product or give people the product the fastest or do it the cheapest. Millennials and everyone in Gen Z loves to get mad about how much power Amazon has, but then they still have their Amazon Prime membership and they still shop at Whole Foods because nobody can argue that Amazon does it best. And because they do it best, everybody has an Amazon Prime membership and they get the majority of the market. They created a product that people simply cannot live without, so they're rewarded for it. Like sometimes it is simple. So the going back to this novelism, technology democratizes consumption, but consolidates production. The result is that if there is one person who's best at doing what they do in the market, they will get to do it for everybody. And even though that seems unfair, if what you think is fair is for power to be completely equally distributed by every single player in the market, I actually don't agree with that because I think it is fair that if you're the best at something, you're rewarded for it and you get to do it for everybody. I just think that people lose sight of that because they love to have an opinion and for some reason it became cool to be against capitalism, but the logic isn't quite there. Like capitalism is inherently fair. It is fair because the best person in the world at something gets to do it for everybody. And that is how you end up with the best quality goods and services and you reward people who are talented. And if you don't like capitalism, like go see what it's like to live in a communist system and then come back and talk to me afterwards. Number six, the last idea that I really loved this month was someone said you can escape competition through authenticity. I actually think this was Naval also. He said, authenticity is the antidote to competition. If you're competing with someone, it means that you're trying to be like them. But if you're building and marketing something that is just an extension of who you are, nobody can compete with you on that. If you're being purely authentic, if you have an authentic brand or an authentic product, you're just purely being yourself in your true authentic form, it is impossible for anybody to compete with you. Competition is you're trying to be the same. Competition is you're trying to make the same product, sell the same product, be the same person, and win customers or win other people over your competition. If you turn the focus towards authenticity, then you eliminate competition from the equation. And the second piece of advice that was kind of paired with this is that you can build your authenticity up even more by if you're okay with being flexible in your interests, because the more flexible you are in your interests, the more multidimensional you are, and therefore the harder you are to replicate. So for example, like being flexible in your interests means not being afraid to pair together things or to pair together traits that don't intuitively seem to go together or that other people don't often pair together. For example, like an authentic personality could be pairing together being an optimist with being bluntly realistic. It could mean being quiet but also being funny. It could be loving classical music and then at the same time absolutely hating Mozart with your life. An authentic sense of style could be maybe you pair together, you know, you dress very femininely But then every now and then you sport menswear like a blazer or your boyfriend's t-shirt or something. 
these are the, these little things that make you harder to replicate. And the harder you are to replicate, the more of a unique combination of things you are, the more little pieces you add to your identity capital, the more impossible it becomes to compete with you, the more competition completely goes out the window and also out of your own mind. The most compelling people, the people that catch our attention are the ones who have some unique pairing of traits that you normally would not pair together. So again, it's the beautiful woman who opens her mouth and is incredibly intelligent or the the quiet guy who when he talks is actually really funny. Like those are the most compelling characters we come across because they're unique and therefore are authentic and therefore difficult to replicate or replace. You can take this advice in the context of business too. Like the best businesses in the world are purely authentic. They're not selling commodities. They're selling something unique or maybe they're selling it in a unique way or like delivering it in a unique way. For example, like nobody else I know, again, going back to the Apple example, nobody else could possibly be Apple because Apple did something that no company ever thought of doing. They made a piece of hardware into something beautiful. So authenticity kills competition. And as a result, it will make you very successful in what you're doing. The other side of that is that if you can recognize what your authenticity is, if you can recognize what makes you unique, then it immediately will remove any kind of instinct you may have to compare yourself to others. And you can relax into knowing that you're in your own lane and you there's no reason to feel threatened by competition because nobody else is competing directly against you. And you also don't have to worry about competing directly against anybody else. You just have to worry about building up this like brand capital that makes you completely authentic and irreplaceable. That brings me to the end of my list. Those are just a few ideas I came across this month that stuck with me. I could go on like I have such a huge list of these in my notes app, but I'm trying to space them out. All credit, of course, goes towards the people who these came from. Like there are a few people and resources who I just keep going back to over and over and over because so much of what they say is just incredible and very thought-provoking and they're good at articulating it. So I'm someone who consumes a lot of content, but from a very small number of creators. So Naval and Alex Hormozzi and the NIA boys, Danny Miranda, like those are just my constant repeat. There are very few creators outside of that who I consume on a regular basis, but those are my core, like my bread and butter. Either way, I hope you like this episode. I'll keep doing these as I build up more in my notes app, but that's what I wanted to share for this week. I hope you guys have such a beautiful Thursday and I'm sending kisses from Rome. Ciao.